Okay, can you just start by saying your name and what your current position is? Um, so my name is Kate Orkin. I'm an associate professor in public policy at the University of Oxford, That's the Black right. School of Government. Yeah. And you also have a connection to the Centre for African Studies, is that right? Uh, the Centre for Study of African Economies, yes. Oh, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm one right. of the, the researchers there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So first of all, just tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you find yourself in the in the research area that you are and what were the main kind of career uh, milestones on your way way here? So I, I work in um, labour market and social protection policy as an economist. So I study uh, welfare systems and uh, labour market support systems in poor countries. So the broad kind of idea is how do you get people in poor countries into gainful employment and into sort of more rewarding, more productive jobs, better livelihoods? Um, so that area of policy has grown a huge amount in the last sort of 25 or 30 years in, in general, but particularly in poor countries, um, because governments have started to expand their welfare system somewhat. Um, so before there was no provision made for uh, you know, there was sometimes provision made for if you were a pensioner or if you were a, a vulnerable child and you didn't have any support, but there was very little other other support. But as um, mobile phone provision has expanded, countries have started uh, rapidly expanding who get some sort of basic uh, pension or unemployment insurance relief. And so I work, I mean, actually very much like uh, medical trials work, we do big randomized trials with governments or NGOs um, and we test uh, you know the how you can improve those those sorts of policies um, and one of the big things that's been a kind of real revolution is just giving people cash grants without conditions um, so even in in wealthy countries often to get your unemployment insurance you're required to do certain things um, there's actually a lot of evidence showing that's not particularly effective um, and it costs quite a bit of money to impose so that's been the sort of big backdrop backdrop and that was kind of uh, that revolution was all going on as I was was studying. Um, and so it was a, a I grew up in South Africa, worked a lot with unemployed young people. Um, so I've started an NGO during my undergrad, um, which worked a lot with that population, trying to help uh, young people on the Cape Flats to apply for university. And so really had a, a real sense of, uh, you know, so a growing number of people who are educated in these settings as there's been free primary and secondary education. Um, but the you know huge aspirations for formal employment, but people really struggle to to get work. So that was what got me interested in in that area. And then I've um, I came to Oxford to do my PhD. And then, um, you know, as I started to have more control over my research agenda, that was that was the kind of direction that I that I went into. So when did you arrive in Oxford? Uh, so 2007 to do my master's originally, um, then I worked in Ethiopia for a year um, between master's and PhD, did my PhD at Oxford as well. Um, I was at Cambridge and at Princeton for a bit on um, fellowships and then I came back. Um, so I started at BSG on, in 2018. Um, nice. So I'm sort of right, over, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, I was still a postdoc. Um, and then I'm during the pandemic, I actually got a faculty post and moved into the post that I'm in now. Mm. And so the research you were doing, let's stick before 2019, well, before 2020 for the moment, um, did it involve a lot of field work? Were you, were you going back and forth? Yeah, so the... Um, Are you mainly, was it mainly South Africa that you continued to work in? Um, so I worked there and then also in Kenya. So um, working in, in three big kind of trial sites. Um, so the ones in, in Nairobi, the ones in Johannesburg, and then the one is a rural site in, in Western Kenya. Um, so worked with a team of academics setting up a, a sort of a place where one, uh, you know, it's a often so in, in Western Kenya, it's a set of 400 villages and we collaborated with an NGO um, to test a big cash transfer program. Um, so during my postdoc, that was the main thing I was I was working on. The NGO is called Give Directly. Um, and so the idea behind it is to try and strip out as much overhead as possible um, and to try and just transfer cash directly from donors who want to give it to poor people in developing countries um, and they do it as a quite a big lump sum so there's a it's about a year's worth of income for a person an average person in Kenya 
and poor rural households get this as a lump sum um, and they can use it to start businesses or to invest in a child's education or to you know improve their housing there's all sorts of things it's given completely unconditionally um, and so uh, from 2018 to just before the pandemic we were working on an evaluation of this program um, and trying to understand uh, sort of what its its effects were um, and we find you know very similarly to uh, cash programs that have been run a lot in the developing world. Um, there's this huge narrative that poor people waste the money and they're going to get excited and they get this uh, grant and then they're going to just blow it on cigarettes and alcohol. There's absolutely no evidence that is true. There's meta-analyses now of hundreds of studies around the world showing that actually um, people will spend money uh, primarily on food, but they invest in assets. They often use the money to search for work. Uh, or they'll start, a, you know, start or improve economic activities that they're doing. Um, and particularly when they get a big lump sum, as opposed to just a small amount of welfare each month, that can actually be really life changing in helping people to either get into better jobs or to um, build up their businesses. So that was exactly what we saw in, in Kenya, um, you know, very similar to other trials that had been done. And then we were testing in addition, trying to understand the effects. So our kind of unique bit was trying to understand um, what was going on within the households um, and how was that changing women and children's position and their ability to negotiate over the cash transfer. So that was our new bit. But, you know, we were also finding very similar evidence to what um, other countries had found uh, when they were doing these these sorts of programs. And did the NGO also provide advice? And, and what about banking? I mean, they, did you just literally give them a pile of cash or did no, you? So, there, um, it's a good, so there's there's a mobile money system in Kenya oh. called Mpesa, um, mm-hmm. which is on, it works even on really basic mobile phones. Um, and so the NGO gives, if you don't have a mobile phone, they give you a mobile phone and they help you to register for it. And then the money, you don't have a bank account, but it's there's a system where people you know, like even very poor vendors in the market, you can just transfer money between the phones. Um, so it basically replaces the bank system. India's got that as well. And a lot of countries are, are, are getting them. And so with that capacity, it's made it actually very easy for governments to send money to people's mobile phones, which, uh, you know, that then becomes very important during during COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But the NGO has been a leader in using that technology to transfer money to um, to the households. Um, so yeah, so that's that's how the um, how it gets done, and so then it sort of sits on the phone, like kind of think of your phone as a credit card, basically, or a debit card. And did every household in this say this four hundred villages in Western Kenya? Did every household get the money? Um, so it was targeted at the poorest forty percent of the households. Okay. Um, yeah. So um, we use what's called a proxy means test. So you. Um, uh, uh, the kind of best measure of poverty tends to be what households spend every month. Um, but researchers have developed a proxy for that, which tends to be sort of their basic assets. So the state of their house, uh, the quality of the floor, that sort of, so it's, um, we use, we would measure that before the NGO went to the, the households, they would measure that. And then they would use uh, that to target. I mean, there's, there's quite a kind of cutoff in the communities you can see at the very very poorest people can't afford to put an iron roof on their houses. Um, and so they have to redo it every year with the thatch and they'll have a mud floor and they won't have even a basic mobile phone. And that's the kind of very poorest people. And so the, that was who we were we were targeting with this program. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I was interested whether um, you see uh, a kind of lifting of all the ships. If, if, if everybody in the community is doing a bit better economically, does that have repercussions within the community? Yeah, so actually one of my colleagues in the economics department did uh, the first study on this with um, with the same NGO, it's an, in an adjacent area, um, and they do find that that's the case. It's, uh, as Keynes told us in the 1950s, um, when you inject more, um, you know, particularly in a recession, but at any time when you inject more money into a, um, a community, it's... So, if you have a very limited supply of goods and services, it can lead to inflation. But in this case, actually, markets are working pretty well. Um, and so when you give this big cash injection, people spend it because they're poor. They don't buy Moet champagne. They're buying locally produced goods. 
Um, and so that actually kickstarts a process of economic growth in these communities. Uh, more businesses open, um, the businesses uh, sort of make more make more profits, uh, often because they're um, they're selling uh, you know more goods and services. Um, and they reckon the multiplier effect of aid that's given is around two between two and two point five, um, oh. which is in uh, you know so it really does kickstart a kind of process of of economic growth, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, so the NGO is actually on the basis of these different evaluations is now looking at uh, working with the governments of Kenya and Malawi, um, and they're going to be trying to do something like this at a national level um, to see if uh, you know just a, a really big injection of cash distributed to the poorest people can uh, kickstart a process of economic growth. Mm, mm, very interesting. Yeah. So let's get to COVID now. Can you remember where you were or under what circumstances you first heard that something was going on in China and that might affect you? you I, yeah, remember very vividly because my, my fiance worked on the vaccine team. Yeah. Um, and so in it was just after Valentine's Day. And so we'd gone away for a nice uh, weekend and we started, he started seeing the stuff coming out of China and he was absolutely freaking out, um, you know, as any infectious diseases doctor was. Um, I thought he'd lost it a little bit, to be honest. Um, and so we, in that, that first kind of couple of weeks, he was really trying, you know, there was just a lot of conversation trying to get people to pay attention to the issue internally in the UK. Um, but then, you know, almost immediately we started to realize um, or he started to realize that there was going to be both possibility for vaccine production um, and um, that it was very likely that developing countries weren't going to be able to buy it. Um, and so, yeah, so I think the, the first bits of the pandemic before I kind of got into like, how is this going to apply to welfare systems? Um, actually, about the first two months we spent... Um, so he, um, uh, his, so this is Sandy Douglas. Sandy he, Douglas. He has also um, been interviewed as part of this yeah. project. So oh, yeah. cross reference. Um, Adrian Hill, um, who runs the Jenner Institute, and then my um, uh, old PhD supervisors, uh, Professor Stefan Durkon, who's a prof at the um, uh, public policy school as well. Uh, and so he was um, at that time had just left as the chief economist at Difford. And so we've all worked, you know, they work much more, the, the whole Jenner Institute's uh, thing is trying to, uh, realizing that there are places where there aren't markets for drugs. So, you know, the drugs work and they have benefits or drugs or vaccines, but no one can afford to pay for them. Um, and so they've got this whole, uh, you know, trying to um, have universities as a public service trying to invent low cost publicly available technologies that um, you know not for profits or others can use to get those those benefits out to poor countries is very similar to the sort of work we do um, and so we had a lot of discussions um, and then we ended up writing a kind of uh, big um, uh, sort of policy note but basically arguing that this, issue was going to hit vaccines for poor countries um, and so that uh, there might be underinvestment in vaccines in general but there was particularly likely to be underinvestment in vaccines that would go to poor countries uh, so that didn't need a fridge and that um, potentially could be um, administered in fewer doses because obviously the distribution systems in those countries are really really limited um, so yeah so from February through March, so I guess by about March 6th, we had written that note um, and we were talking with people in the UK government and at the Gates Foundation and, and CEPI and all of those sorts of uh, places trying to just get this point out there. Um, and I mean, I think this is, is covered, I would guess, in Sandy's video, but it ended up um, that the that was that note was quite influential in um, the World Bank and others um, setting up the sort of alliance to pool funding um, to help developing countries get vaccines. Um, but it also was a big motivator for um, the, uh, so AstraZeneca's deal with Oxford was very uh, good, you know, got a very low price for the vaccines for poor countries. And then they also did this amazing art licensing where they manufactured it in a bunch of poor countries so that it could be easily distributed. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the sort of 
on a personal level of the pandemic, there was this, we don't work together, you know, we 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 live together, but we we suddenly realized that there the economics and the science like needed to go together to make this point. Um so we had a couple of uh you know really um interesting weekends trying to kind of hammer this note out together in language that made sense to both um to both constituencies so you're trying to really distill the complicated science down of uh you know what were the key the key parameters of a vaccine that were going to mean that some of them worked for poor countries and some of them didn't and then you know trying to uh explain some of the quite complicated economic problems in ways that the scientists would understand um so it was quite it was it was very challenging i mean quite an quite an interesting process but it was a weird sort of serendipity that we happen to be able to have the interdisciplinary plenary discussion oh, in the living room yes. which was quite which was quite helpful yeah. um yeah and i mean great to you know then be able to connect stefan and, and adrian who you know then subsequently have like that connection is kind of um stayed um and you know it really was quite a a useful nexus, I think, to connect those two very different worlds um, in a way that could get the resources, you know, because the big issue they were facing actually was money. Um, it was, uh, you know, and they got these initial treasury grants and then World Bank grants um, that would make sure that there was sort of money flowing into the um, vaccine manufacturer right for them to start at the beginning. Um, so it was quite, that was very exciting to be, uh, it was nothing to do with my normal job, but that kind of, uh, took over for the first, first couple of months. Mm, mm. But then, then turning to your, your normal job, as you called it, yeah. um, how did, I mean, from March, obviously from mid-March, we were in lockdown here. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, unlike most of us, you, you had already done quite a lot of remote working because you're yeah. dealing with international colleagues all the time so yeah. did it make a big difference to how you were able to work um so i mean the the big thing that we were very lucky with we we weren't actually in the field so so usually when we'll do an evaluation with the government or an ngo there's a period when you're actually giving the the sort of policy intervention to people so you know, give directly is going around surveying 10,000 households and then giving them the cash transfers. So I didn't have a project of that kind in the field at that stage, which was which was really lucky because I had many colleagues who they were in the middle of trials and they had to shut them down. Um, so I wasn't actually in that stage. We had finished this trial and we had the results and we were writing we were writing them up and doing um, doing analysis. So my own work wasn't wasn't that affected. We had one or two projects that we that we stopped, and we did have we actually had some teams in the country sitting who would normally have been doing the field work, but they didn't have um, they didn't have work at that stage. Um, so that actually ended up being quite useful in some of what we what we ended up doing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you must have realized. Uh, oh, sorry, I shouldn't. I can put words in your mouth. I mean, did it? How soon did it become apparent? that the policy re response to uh, the pandemic was going to have an impact on people in poor communities? So, um, I mean, we, we, yeah, so we finished, we finished that note, the, the, the note, the Gates vaccine note was like March 6th, 7th. And then uh, after we finished that, I started chatting with two other colleagues. So I have a a colleague at Warwick and one at Queen Mary, um, Clément Imbert and Francois Gerard. And so they both work on, um, Francois works on unemployment insurance and Clément works on kind of public works and cash transfers, very similarly to me. Um, and we started talking. Uh, so the lockdown sort of rolled out. A lot of countries weren't locking down in March. And then by March 21st-ish, uh, the country sort of started locking down. Um, and then we realized it was going to be, and it was absolutely devastating. Um, you know, these are not countries, I mean, in developed countries, many places put people on furlough. Um, so they kept work, you know, they weren't working, but they kept being paid. The firms didn't want to keep them on. And so the government paid to take them on. That didn't happen in many poor countries. So they were just millions of people overnight who were laid off. Um, and, you know, in real urban areas was really difficult because um, often 
either, I mean, you saw in India, people were laid off en masse and there was this huge migration out to rural areas with the virus. Um, in many countries tried to stop that happening. So they shut down and then they, they closed down travel out of the cities. But then you have a whole lot of people in the cities who have no jobs and are not getting an income and they can't eat. Um, so, you know, we you could see that happening very quickly. Um, and so when that, um, as soon as that started, so I think sort of from about the, the 21st of March-ish, we started writing a paper about, um, you know, what could the social protection response be from countries? Um, so it has, um, so that, that published and, and went out uh, just as a blog initially, and then we did some kind of podcasts and uh, things around it in the, those first couple of weeks. But it was basically saying, um, you know, countries need to stop worrying so much about exactly whether they can target the poor and just get money out. <laughs> like you just and you know we had a, a three kind of different ways in which countries could could respond. Um, you know, one was using the traditional unemployment insurance that the few formal workers would have. So trying to extend that, uh, make it more generous um, if countries could put people on, on furlough. Um, the second thing was just using the sort of existing social assistance programs. So there are cash and food relief programs. So we were saying try to use the infrastructure that's already paying people, but pay them more. Um, and then we were also talking about informal community channels of support that people could use. Um, and so that was quite a broad ranging paper in the sense of, uh, you know, it covered, we covered different countries, but I started to realize, like, I know South Africa very well. Um, and we work quite a lot with a provider that works a lot with the government. Um, and so, you know, I, I, as soon as we, we'd finished that, so that took about a week. Um, and then as soon as we'd finished that paper, I started to look at what was going on in South Africa. Um, and then we started to think about about how we could get involved uh, in that that particular country case. And you do uh, you already have channels of communication set up between you and the policymakers. Um, so they, I I didn't have at as high a level as we. Um, so I I knew sort of uh, personally the one of the president's economic advisors. Um, and then one of the people who worked in the presidency uh, actually was a student at BSG. Um, and so um, I knew I knew the uh, Trudy Makanya, the president's economic advisor. And so I, I, <laughs> I mean, this was a sort of unusual time, but I just wrote a four page note. Um, and so the first the first kind of thing that was a real issue in the South African context is that the. If you're destitute, like if you're absolutely starving you can go to a welfare office and they'll give you a food parcel and they'll do that for a period of three months. The portion of people who were destitute suddenly ballooned. Um, so there were, I mean, South Africa has 50 million people. There were 9 million people who were saying they were going to bed hungry every night. Um, and they were trying to get food parcels out, but it's the middle of the pandemic. So that at the, that stage in uh, in April, they were about, I think they were getting out about 1 million parcels a week. So just nowhere, one ninth of what they needed. Um, and so the, I was uh, using the evidence from our Kenya project and then also from uh, what is known in the rest of the world. So there's loads of meta studies and things just basically saying you need to shift from food into cash. So, uh, you know, the, the thing that you can pay everybody quickly is cash. And in normal times, we sort of worry, well, if the government uh, gives out cash to poor people, then maybe they're not going to use it well. So we must make sure they, I, I don't agree with this, but we must make sure that they get it as food so that they spend it properly. Um, there's no actual evidence that actually, so, so what I was saying in the note was, uh, we know that if you give people cash, mostly they spend it on food anyway. Cash is more cost effective to distribute because you, instead of trying to move fresh food around or bags of lentils around, um, you know, then you, you just send the cash through the banking system or through this mobile money transfers. It's less likely to get stolen. Um, it's easier to, you know, you can have security on the, the channels of distribution. And, you know, there's lots of studies being done. It delivers similar gains in nutrition and it's less expensive. 
So I kind of put that together in a note and I sent it to Judy and said, um, you know, this is um, uh, this is the evidence base. Uh, you know, what should we, this is what we think we should do. Um, and then I, you know, also did a bunch of radio and TV um, adverts. And then there was um, another group of South African academics who were doing uh, some modeling at the same time. So it was in communication with, with them. Um, and so there was this whole sort of a set of different pressure groups on the government suggesting that they should make this shift. Um, and they did. Um, and so they overnight, well, not overnight. I mean, they worked through, I think it was sort of by the end of April, they, the president announced in South Africa announced this big relief package, um, and it was the biggest relief, biggest change to the welfare system since about 2004. So in 2004, they started giving a child benefit, and um, this time they, uh, so they did two things. The the first was existing people who were already getting government grants, so pensioners and people who were caregivers of a child. They increased the amount that they got, um, and then the second thing was they they put, uh, they said that anyone who was unemployed could apply by mobile phone to get an unconditional cash payment. Um, and they were going to get three, uh, it's about $35, about 20 pounds a month. Um, and that had never existed before. They'd never been welfare for uh, the able-bodied before. Um, so they set this up. It was absolutely astounding. Um, they set up, I think they got six million applications in like the first three weeks for this grant. And then they started paying out the money, um, you know, and increased the, and so that, um, that change in policy, they reckon uh, stopped 5.6 million people from falling into food poverty um, in those first, those first uh, couple of months after the lockdown. Um, so it was really an amazing, amazing change by government, but also amazing, um, campaign by civil society and and academics so alongside the academic papers there was this big uh, pressure group which was the unions and various civil society organizations called pay the grants um which was basically arguing for this the shift away from food parcels into the um into the cash provision um, and did they have the money in the treasury or did they have to get money from international sources no that's a very that's a very good question they um they went so there was I think there was obviously a lot of government spending that didn't happen um in that in that period so I think some of it came from from that well, I mean I th infrastructure projects and that projects kind of and yeah so I think there was a lot of a lot of stuff they guessed wasn't gonna ha wasn't gonna happen um it was an emergency budget so they you know as many governments were doing I don't think at that stage that they and I don't actually think South Africa has gone for um, they later went for a World Bank loan, but I think that was for different purposes. There were massive issues. So like countries that just didn't have, so they reallocated budget and they have cut other things subsequently. And But I mean, there definitely were countries, you know, Malawi, like <laughs> really poor countries just didn't have the ability to do this. Um, so it has been, um, you know, looking across the different countries, it has been, the case that it's more been in middle income, lower middle income countries, so countries where there's some tax base, and then they can redistribute. Um, but I think then the IMF later on tried to help countries to borrow more easily. There's a system called special drawing rights that they reallocate. Yeah, I mean it's, but they basically did try to help countries to do some more of this. But it has been um, there has been inequality within poor countries and what they were able to do. And you, I'm not, tell me if I'm jumping ahead too quick, no, no. but one of the things you've been interested in doing, I gather you're part of a mind and behavior research group, uh, is actually building self-efficacy yeah. uh, among poor people so that they feel more confident about using the money that that, that they've got. Um, can you tell me a bit more, more about that? Yeah, so um, in my PhD, the one of the things that I worked on was uh, these uh, sort of interventions to boost people's aspirations and increase self-efficacy. So um, the particular intervention we designed was a set of videos, which is a set of um, successful life stories about people who were very similar to the, the uh, people who were, um, so in, you know, we did this in 
uh, rural Kenya in the study that I was talking about and also in rural Ethiopia. So it's uh, with farmers who are often women, um, who are often sort of of, of lower status. Um, and so we show these uh, uh, stories which are, uh, you know, about real life people um, who've managed to improve their own position through uh, their business or through, um, you know, studying for a further educational qualification or something like that. Um, so we show these life stories and we've seen in randomized trials. So you know, we give those randomly to some villagers, but not others. And they actually do have an amazing impact on, on people's self-efficacy, their uh, aspirations for the future, and then on how much they invest for the future. So um, interestingly, uh, so it's often investing in kids' education, uh, but also women pull it, putting more into their businesses, um, working a bit more in their businesses, and then that increases the business um, profitability. And so uh, in the study in Kenya that I was talking about, we tested those sorts of interventions and we found those had these benefits for self-efficacy and empowerment. And then we also tested the cash transfers um, and then we tested the two together. And so interestingly, the cash transfers also have really big benefits for people's aspirations and self-efficacy. So just giving the money really empowers people. Um, you know, we measure that. And it has, it's more expensive to give them the money, but, you know, it also has bigger um, benefits. So I think that was quite an, so the one of the things we were interested in was, you know, if you add the um, video intervention onto the cash, can that help? And it it does help. So it, it particularly increases the extent to which women own the businesses, are able to control them, um, and the extent to which there's investment in children. So it does help. But I think the big lesson for me actually from that was just the cash. You know, we always think of welfare as being disempowering and that it, you know, makes people dependent. It doesn't. It boosts people's, uh, you know, how well they think they're going to do in the future, how in control they feel of their life. Um, you know, do they think that things are going to get better? And it then changes, you know, one of the things it's doing, there is a psychological channel. And that's somehow, you know, so so people always puzzled. I give people money. Why do they keep working? In fact, they work more. Um, but I think it's because of some of these psychological benefits. Um, so I think that was a really quite profound thing that I didn't I didn't expect. And that's been a, a really important uh, reason why I've you know, argued for the scale up of this international welfare programs, um, because it's simple and it's it's fairly quick to scale up. And, you know, we already knew from our own work that it was going to have these very multifaceted benefits for people. Mm -hmm. The other thing is it, it improves mental health. Um, so levels of depression also drop ma massively with cash transfers. So, yeah, well, so I think it's, it's it really quite a powerful thing to be able to give. Um, yes, yes. I mean, particularly physical health as well. If people are better, yeah. Not, they're going to yeah, so I haven't worked on that, but they have found, you know, people can pay for medicine where they weren't able to do that before or pay for you know, I mean, in, in poor countries, it's awful. You'll often see people have a huge growth or a broken limb that hasn't been set, but for tiny amounts of money and they can't work. Um, you know, we're seeing a version of that um, in, in the UK, very sadly. So I think it, it really, uh, the just more resources can do an enormous amount. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, having, so you're, a lot of what you were doing early in the pandemic was essentially advocacy and, yeah. and promoting the findings of previous yeah. research. Uh, did you go on to do more research uh, as a consequence of the cash transfers? Um, so we we haven't done, um, so we didn't do any work on the cash transfer program itself. Um, some of the reason for that was, um, you know, in a normal time, we would pilot a program and we would do a randomized trial during the piloting. During this program, we said, look, uh, the kind of duty of care in this situation is this has, we think this is going to work. And so we just have to give it to everybody. So, I mean, it's it's tricky now because now the government, so I've been working with the government on an ongoing basis for the last three years or so. And now they want to scale, they want to keep the program going. So it's running with the whole country and they want to keep it going. We don't actually know what it did. Um, you know, we can do some estimates, but they're not as good as the estimates we would normally have. Um, so that's actually quite a, and I think that happened with a lot of countries that very rapidly scaled things up and now they want to make them permanent. Um, so we didn't actually study the, the cash transfer program. 
Um, but we have been doing quite a lot of work on um, how you help workers get back into work because there were these big layoffs and now workers are trying to reconnect with their employers. Um, so we've actually been, uh, you know, on the more labor market side, doing quite a bit of work on, on uh, low cost ways that employers can screen workers so that they can find the best ones. Um, and then also how to help workers identify which jobs they'll be well suited to. And is that a matter of technology and platforms and just communication? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the main thing, I mean, one of the things that uh, happened during the pandemic was the labor market went online. Um, so in many countries, if there was a, 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 you know, these platforms like Indeed or the government has a job search platform here, they also have those in, in developing countries and they're pretty uh, cost effective to, to access. And so work seekers often use those, firms often use those, but uh, way more people started using them. Um, which is great. Um, you know, I think in general, it's been a real impetus to get a lot of stuff online, which has been fantastic. Um, yeah, so we work with one of the providers in South Africa that went from, you know, during the pandemic, I think it went from having a few hundred thousand work seekers. Now they have 4 million job seekers signed up on the platform. Um, so we're doing a lot of work with that platform to try and uh, the one big study that that came out during COVID was um often employers will do a lot of screening. So they'll look at your school qualifications and then they'll make you sit a numeracy test and can you answer the phone and lots of different, and that's quite expensive. And then they, people have to do that in person. Um, and so we've been testing, actually does that, do those qualifications help? Do they make workers more productive? Or um, what we we and some employers think is that actually if you test people's soft skills, that actually probably accounts mostly for how well they do in the job. Um, what, kind of, and, what kind of soft skills? Um, so the one we test, um, it's actually some very simple self-reported measures about um, how do you structure your day, you know, in the last week, how often have you got done the things that you meant to do? Um, you know, how good at you are you at persisting through a task? Those sorts of things. You would think people would, people are very honest, which is very interesting. Um, but yeah, so that actually predicts very well um, whether people will get hired into a job. And then what we're testing is, does that that measure predict how long they stay in the job as well? Um, but, you know, you can do that, that measure. You can phone people and ask them, you can even get them to key it in on their phone. Um, and so we're using that as a way of screening people to try and cut the screening costs and help people move back into into work mm, mm. and I, I've got to note that you've also had an interest in um, the way governments communicate with people um, and the message tracker oh uh, yes yeah yeah so that was another thing we did during during COVID um, um, was was just looking at how um, uh, yeah what sorts of messaging governments provide to people um, so the big thing during lockdowns was how to encourage people to uh, sort of stick to the rules. Um, and there uh, we just did it. It was, again, a review of, an ev of the evidence, but finding that uh, making moral appeals is actually much more effective than you would think. Uh, so people really want to do the right thing. Um, and if you appeal to those norms, uh, that's that's usually quite likely to to be effective. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, do you have any connection with the um, government response tracker, which is also within the? Oh, at at I've also spoken to Anna yeah. about. So. Yeah, um, we didn't actually during the pandemic. I mean, we didn't do as much on the government messaging as we we sort of. There were a couple of things we started tracking at the beginning, and then you know, once this cash grant stuff started, we we basically moved the whole team over into doing that. Like we right. didn't really have enough resources for doing all of the different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, that, I mean that sounds amazing. And you mentioned that you you are now working with other countries as well as uh, as well as South Africa. Yeah. So um, on uh, so so the other main big one we've been working with is is Kenya. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I mean very similar. So uh, that original paper that we wrote on the social protection response, I think that has been quite widely used in a range of different um a range of different countries to I mean we were not the only ones making that argument but um I think there 
yeah, I mean, the, the number of cash transfer programs has skyrocketed in during the pandemic, which has been really encouraging. Um, I mean, it's still the impacts on poverty have still been huge. We've really gone very far backwards for meeting the sustainable development goals, for example. Um, but I think there was quite a lot of the, the negative impacts have still been. Yeah. Huge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and how optimistic are you that, that that kind of government support will be stay in place in the future in a non non pandemic non emergency situation? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think pretty optimistic. Like, um, you know, I know the South African case very well, and it it is a battle, you know, because as the emergency sort of thing uh, reduces, you know. To be honest, I think politically, some of what they were worried about was literally food riots, um, you know, and as things have gone a bit back to normal and more people have been employed and so on, that recedes a little bit. And so suddenly they think, well, you know, is this going to be popular enough that we're going to put up taxes? Um, and so I think those sorts of, uh, you know, questions about redistributive policy do start to become more prominent. Um and there's pushback. And so actually the South African government did drop the grant for a little bit. Um, they did actually then have food riots um, because the, the economy wasn't yet back on its, on its feet. So that was in sort of July, 2001. And then we suddenly did a big- 2021. Yeah, 21, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then we suddenly did another big piece of modeling saying, oh, we should bring the cash grant back. And then they, they did. Um, but I think there is, you know, it is then, I think governments face a good pressure of, you know, they have to take people off the grant programs, and those people are also voters, um, and they can protest. And so I think, you know, it, I think there has been an expansion that probably isn't going to, you know, it, it will be politically very difficult for governments to, uh, to pull that back. If you're a fan of redistributive policy, as I am, then, you know, you think that's a really good thing. If you're not a fan of the welfare state, then you think it's a bad thing. But, um, you know, obviously there's debate about that. Mm, mm, mm. So, yeah, I mean, has has working on this, the, on these projects in the pandemic um, raised new questions that you're interested in working on in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, sure. Um, you know, one of the things is, is, um, really the, the sort of set of, uh, you know, if a lot of workers lose their jobs, how do you help people to connect back into the economy quickly? Um, because I think we, we do really worry that there's been a generation that's been really badly affected. Um, so they in, in the labor market literature, it's, it's called scarring. Um, so, you know that has a psychological connotation but I mean it's it's really refer you know so we know that if you graduate during a recession or uh, any of that kind of downturn you're actually less likely to earn over your life and you have higher unemployment and and so on um, and we've seen that you know on a really big scale with lots of um, so I think there really are worries about you know how is this generation that's coming of age going to do and then also the people who were in in schooling but I think also it's a kind of more hopeful narrative of well maybe we've developed some tools that we didn't have before so you know in particular this being able to work online at low cost um, you know and really I think it was quite uh, encouraging for many governments and practitioners to have to say you know this problem is so massive and we have to deal do something now and actually what people were able to do at big scale in my field was more than they'd been able to do for 20 years before, because you know, suddenly there was the political will. Um, and so, and so I, I mean, I do think for people who are big advocates of, you know, real, really policy that's targeted at the very poorest, you know, it said there's a lot like homelessness in the UK. We can actually fix this if we just put enough money and time into it. Um, and so I think, I think in that sense, people's hand has been strengthened a bit because it it is possible. It's just a question of political will and resources. I mean, I think that raises a, a quick question in my mind about the balance for policymakers between listening to people like you who are producing an evidence base and uh, taking making political decisions based on what they think voters want. And those two things. <laughs> aren't always aligned as we know yeah. very well. No, absolutely. And it depends if the bulk of your voting base is poor or not. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that is a that is a real a real tension that many governments are are facing. And, um, you know, also the I mean, I think the other thing that was really encouraging that has uh, been a powerful positive lesson was, uh, you know, the <laughs> when we were accumulating this whole evidence base before the pandemic, you know, there was a good 20 years of work gone had gone into how do we distribute cash by mobile phone? What does it do to, uh, you know, what is the comparison to food aid? And it was there. Um, and so I think there has been quite a, a strengthening of the argument for that sort of research um, because it helped us to really pivot very quickly in policy terms. Um, the other thing that's been helpful was a sort of systems of data surveillance. We talked a lot about them for health, but actually the countries that did the best were um, often those who had a good economic surveillance system, if you think, call it that, I mean, that's not what we call them, but, um, you know, you knew how many people there were of different income levels, who was going to be the likeliest to be affected, who should you target, how could you measure that? Um, and so I think the, the country, so South Africa was lucky, we had a really good data source that we could use called the National Income Dynamic Study. Um, and that helped us to be able to map, you know, what would the policy look like? And then how should we design it? Um, and, you know, that that investment will have paid for itself many times over. I mean, you know, we're all now trying to make the case for better preparedness in the, in the future. Um, so, you know, I think, but but optimistically, I hope that, you know, the lessons of data and of, of uh, building up an evidence base in, in policy terms have been have been quite positive ones. Excellent, excellent. So can I just turn a little bit to how living through the pandemic was for you? Uh, I mean, one question I'm asking everybody is how personally threatened did you feel by um, the, the virus? I mean, <laughs> not it now, but back at the beginning yeah. before there were any vaccines, how did you how did you feel about it? Um, I mean, I'm very, very lucky, you know, healthy and young. So, um, you know, I don't, I, it wasn't, it wasn't really something, I mean, we were super safe. We were sitting in our little house in Headington on Skype calls a lot, but, um, you know, I don't think, I, I, I mean, neither of us are kind of in frontline services. So I think that it was, it was curiously detached in a way that I wouldn't normally, you know, always when I'm doing a study or, out meeting the providers and the you know people getting the policy and you're really in the countries where I'm working and I I couldn't like the, the flights were closed you couldn't get to Kenya or, or South Africa um and so that was that was very weird I mean I met all of the government teams we worked with a year and a half into the pandemic um so that was that was quite strange um because it it felt you know it was also this particularly beautiful springtime and the you know i knew that the world my world was like absolute carnage but i couldn't see it um so it was this very strange kind of i was very safe and very lucky um but at the same time you know in my frame of reference there was a lot going on that i felt like i really needed to to deal with mm. um you know and i think that was also weird there was like a lot of people were baking and doing sourdough and <laughs> we had like upstairs was the cash grants and downstairs was the vaccine factory um, so was, did you think that the, the did you feel that the fact that you had something to keep you busy did that help to support your well-being um yeah ab absolutely I mean I think um you know I, I think I didn't feel this I, I only got to the sort of work part of it a little bit later I mean I think the March April May for the for the vaccine people was absolutely punishing I mean <laughs> um I just remember like feeding Sandy desserts because he lost 10 kilos in like a month because he was, I've just never seen anybody work like that. They, yeah, I was, you know, I did kind of switch more into, I was doing the domestic stuff. So I was going to kind of going out to get food and, you know, making sure that the things were fed and cleaned and that sort of, it was literally just like taking food into his room. So he'd be up when I got up and then I would take out the dinner plate and he would go to bed at two and, um, so, you know, I wasn't working that level of of things, although then later with uh, it did, you know, we were we were also working quite hard. Um, so I think that that was strange because because I think uh, it was a very, um, 
you know, very intellectual in the sense of it was just you with your laptop, but it was this, you know, quite punishing period in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't have said it was was the highest levels of well-being we've had. In, no. <laughs> you know, also at the same time, it's like in some ways you feel, you know, like you've, you've kind of qualified your whole life to try and be able to do something and you could. Um, and so I think that was quite a quite a unique privilege, but it was also. I think was also quite, quite stressful. I mean, I didn't, I didn't ever have that, that feeling that I think the vaccine people did of, you know, literally live every hour I sleep, like people are dying. Um, and I think that was, <laughs> you know, that was tough for them. Um, and there was this beginning point during the vaccine stuff where, you know, I, I mean, I think we did help with doing the funding notes and things, but it was this weird, because I, you know, I care very deeply about what my contribution is to the world. And it was, it was interesting as a feminist, there was this point where I was like, the best thing I can do right now is feed this man and like, let him do <laughs> the thing that he's doing. Um, and and that was quite an interesting thing to sort of work through in your in your head. Um, but you know, I think I think I'm very, very proud of of what they did, of what we ended up being able to do. Um, I think I think people pulled together incredibly and you know, I had teams from all over like just working round the round the clock i think i think really people did get a lot from you know my my whole team of young people just being able to contribute in some way um i think they really uh, felt much more much more pointful and it was you know we didn't know that we were going to achieve anything um but it really I, I think we do feel very pleased with with what we what we managed to do, obviously, in in collaboration with the with the government people, um, but yeah, we were we were glad when that first bit of things was was over. Um, although I think that kind of yeah, I mean, it's actually ended up being quite a long collaboration now on the social grant stuff. It's been nearly nearly three years um, mm-hmm. of sort of policy work, so it has kept going a little bit less frenetic pace, but not not much. Mm-hmm. And has any of that experience changed your attitude or your approach to your work? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's quite tricky going back to the business of like the, the pernickety stuff of publishing papers. Um, you know, I do, I do feel like it's definitely reoriented me towards the core of what's important in my work. Um, you know, and actually when it came down to it, it was, you know, it, it was really important that the model was done right, but you also had to do it fast. Um, and so I think I think there are ways in which some of what we do in academia isn't completely, yeah, you know, it's good we can dip into this emergency stuff. There is a longer, more drawn out process of producing the evidence. But, you know, that said, it's also really important. It's right. You know, when I was looking up 20 trials on cash programs, I was very glad they were properly done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's made me more conscious of the work that happens that happens quickly, but also the importance of those those scientific standards. I mean, I think I think we. Uh, I remember Stefan at some point sending me a link of, um, you know, he said uh, there was an there's an amazing MSF podcast about Ebola in West Africa, and they said, you know, it got it got fixed by uh, you know someone from a specialist from Uganda with a spreadsheet, <laughs> um, and I do think that if you care about science and you worry about the kind of anti-expert thing, I think it has been quite an affirming experience in saying, you know, that the technical details are actually really important in good policy. Um, and so I think in that sense, it's made me, um, you know, it was very draining, but I think also feel much more committed to what, what we're trying to do on a longer term basis. Mm, mm. I mean, I've just read it. We've got I went a minute to go. I don't. How tight are you for time? No, no, I can, I can go on if you. Oh, need. good. Um, because the the question I, I did have a note to ask you about capacity building. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's all very well, <laughs> Oxford coming over yeah. and telling South Africa what yeah. to do, but clearly South Africa ought to have its own experts. Is yeah. that something that you've also been engaged with? Yeah. So I mean, I think the. I think our process was much more collaborative, actually. So we, um, so the longer term work we've been doing now, um, so in the sort of rush of the pandemic and this big change in welfare policy, that was a bit, you know, there they were sort of two different, two or three different teams who were working on it. So I had a team and I was working with some researchers in Cape Town. 
and some in um, at Duke in North Carolina. And so that was our team. And then there was this other team uh, that was at the universities of Cape Town and, and Stellenbosch, and they had some researchers in Amherst. Um, and then actually for the later stages of designing, so we're now working with the government on making this grant permanent, we've actually put those teams together. So it's, it's a pretty equal distribution of um, researchers between the, so the, uh, you know, we have more of the experience on the randomized trial side. So we know more of the evidence base from other countries. And then the South Africans do a particular sort of fiscal modeling technique um, so they've worked a lot more on the survey data and they, um, you know, there's also slightly different, I do labor and there's some differences in expertise in the teams. But I mean, I guess the question then you have to ask is how are those South African researchers there? Um, and, you know, there's there's been very long term, really amazing engagements in building. I mean, I'm a I'm a product of that. Like, um, you know, I am South African. I did my undergrad there. Um, there's a lot of different sort of scholarships and programs that exist to help um, people do short and long-term experience abroad. Uh, and then those people, a lot of them go back and teach in the universities and, um, but, you know, that's, that's uh, so you know, that means that there is this pretty strong economic capacity there. Um, and the treasury has also invested quite a lot. They've got a, quite a lot of their own economists. So I think, our next stage is to kind of try and get it out of the universities into the treasury. Um, but, you know, at least in, in the experience of doing the collaborative work, I didn't, I didn't feel like we were capacity building. I mean, I was learning as much as, yep. um, you know, but, but that's unusual, you know, it's a country that's a bit more developed. And so that wouldn't be the case in, in many other places. And then we work a lot more on trying to do training and, um, but I mean, the research center I work in, um, that's a huge part of what we do is uh, trying to get African economists, um, you know, into economics, into PhD programs, and then, you know, back to, um, back to their own countries to, to teach in the, in the universities. So we've got a kind of long-term engagement with that. And what about international organizations like the International Labour Organization? I mean, is, is there a, a move to try to get these messages spreading across the whole low-income yeah. countries from a from a kind of UN-based approach. Yeah, that's, um, so a lot of the sort of economic interventions are through the World Bank. Um, yeah. So we work very closely with them. So one of my collaborators runs the, um, runs the jobs practice at the World Bank and she's actually been, so she's, I mean, she's amazing. Her, uh, Eliana Carenza, she sort of um, manages uh, like a lot of research projects that deliver, so she collaborates with academics to kind of get evidence delivered. And then they uh, do a lot of work synthesizing that and trying to get it into how the bank designs operations. So, I mean, that's probably the biggest dissemination channel um, because, you know, so when uh, like most of these sorts of programs are run with some World Bank money. Um, and so then the the banks involved in design, how they designed and evaluated and so on. Um, and the, yeah, I mean, in terms of the ILO and the UN system, there is, there's quite a lot of work on, you know, what is done and they run some programs in countries, but it's, I think the move in the field has been really to try and um, get bilateral donors and the World Bank to fund the government. And I, I, you know, I really think that's much better, like, because otherwise you set up a whole parallel system and you actually want the government to build its own capacity, you just want to be funding it. Um. Mm, mm. And um, is there anything you'd like to see change in the future about how, um, how you're able to do the research that you do? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think the, yeah, you know, one of the um, the biggest things has actually been funding. So one of the downsides has been, um, you know, foreign aid was massively cut in the wake yes. of the pandemic. So, um, you know, the uh, UA, the UK cut the budget from 0.7 to 0.5 of GDP. That and was then, even before, wasn't it? Wasn't that even before? The yeah, pandemic? so that was just before. But then a lot of the a lot of the cuts. Um, 
it uh, sort of started to come through in 2021 right. yeah. um, because they, um, you know, they sort of went a bit downstream from the uh, when the cut was made and then the, the budgets ended up being cut. So that's been devastating. I mean, the the most, a lot of the research I spoke about, like that was funded in the period when the UK was funding research. Um, and so I think the biggest thing would just be trying to get those programs back up, like, if we could just go up to 0.7 again, um, you know, both on the funding research side, but also, uh, you know, many countries had programs like the one I was talking about in South Africa. They had one that was funded by DFID and that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, those that's been one of the worst downsides of the of the pandemic. So I think you know, it's not a research focused thing, but I think that's that's the biggest thing I'm worried about now is that we're, you know, we're, we just seem to be under a, a government that's not doesn't have those those same um priorities um but yeah i mean i think i think it's been also you know it, it has changed things already in a good way and that we being away from the countries actually made us put the local teams in charge more and i think that's been really good um yeah so yeah no i mean it's it's been a, a real injection into things but quite energizing and positive i think excellent thank you very much